Welcome. You are listening to sermon audio from Day 3 Church in Granite Falls, North Carolina. We invite you to join us online or in person for one of our services. For more information about our church, please visit day3church.org. Day 3 Church, experience a new day in your life. I'm thankful we could make it to an early service this week, aren't you? And uh, I uh, missed, missed doing that. Uh, for some reason this morning when I was, I was getting ready to come to church, I thought, well, it seems like it's been two weeks since I preached. I preached once last week on the second service, but I, I don't know. I, I, I guess I've been busy, had a lot of water under the bridge, but it seemed like it had been a, uh, kind of like an eternity uh, from last Sunday until uh, this Sunday. Uh, we're doing this series we've called Set Apart with the intent of us um, thinking about ourselves in that context, reminding ourselves that, that God through Jesus has set us apart to himself. And uh, that means we're supposed to live uh, set-apart lives, that we're supposed to uh, live our lives set apart to the purposes of God, the intentions of God, uh, in what He wants to accomplish in this world and uh, the people around us and our own lives. Uh, and, and that's uh, the, the thought behind the whole, whole series. Uh, up to this point, uh, I started out with kind of a doctrinal basis uh, for the series, talking about how being set apart or being sanctified is a done deal of something God completely finished in Christ. Uh, and if you know Christ as your Savior, you have been eternally set apart to Him. But also, it's an ongoing process because uh, being set apart in sanctification is something that's ongoing in our lives to where we need to be allowing uh, the Holy Spirit in our lives to set us more and more apart to where we look uh, more and more like Jesus. Then we talked about being set apart through prayer, how we in our prayer life can uh, pull aside from the world and everything that we're facing. And in that moment as we're spending time in prayer with God, we're setting ourselves apart to him. Uh, John talked to us about being set apart for honorable use uh, instead of dishonorable use. Uh, last week, I, I talked about how we have been uh, uh, set apart uh, to proclaim the word of God. Uh, maybe not the exact same way that Paul was because we looked at Paul and Barnabas in that first missionary journey they went on. But I believe every believer has been set apart where we need to be proclaiming the word of God. Today's a little bit maybe an extension of that. Uh, and next week will be kind of also, uh, as far as the underlying theme of what's, uh, taking place. But, uh, our, our theme today is this, set apart Jesus as Lord in your heart. Set apart Jesus as Lord in your heart. If you got your Bible with you, I hope you do. We're going to be in first Peter chapter three, and, uh, we're going to be eventually here in just a moment going from verse 13, uh, down through verse 22. But the focal point of the passage I want to read now. I'm not going to read all the verses now. We'll look at that as we go through the message. But the focal point where this thought comes from is 1 Peter 3, verse 15. And depending on the translation you're looking at, the first translation I've got up there is from the English Standard Version. And it says, but in your hearts, regard Christ the Lord as holy. The NIV puts it like this, set apart Christ as Lord. In those phrases that were used in the Greek in the New Testament, when it says in your hearts, it means in a fixed position. Uh, we kind of need to have this settled in a fixed position that in, in our heart, which we think of uh, 
a lot of times is just this uh, uh, organ that beats inside of our chest, but we also use it in other uh, context, just like the Bible does. For instance, uh, guys, all the guys look this way. All, all the guys, all the men look this way. What's happening this week? Huh? All right. I want to be sure you know, so you won't be in trouble. Okay. But, but we'll, we'll talk about our heart in that way. When, when really we're, we're talking about our feelings, our emotions, not, not just this organ in our chest. So that's kind of the way the Bible used it too. Your, your feelings, you, the, by the analogy, the very, the very middle of something, the very fiber of your being, you can think of it like that. We need to, in a fixed position, be setting Jesus apart. We need to be making him holy. We need to have him consecrated, sanctified, like he's, he's sacred. Christ is being the supreme authority, or you could say it like this, the supreme controller in our lives. We need to set him apart in our heart like that. Uh, a different way to say that may be to say it like this. We need to put King Jesus on the throne of our heart and leave him there. He needs to be the one that's, that's there upon our heart, the only king upon the throne of your heart. That might sound easier than it is as Lord upon my heart. It's difficult at best, but I think it can be especially difficult when we talk about suffering. And the context, you may already know this, but one of the major themes going through First Peter is the theme of suffering. Because those believers that he is writing to in Asia Minor are about to face suffering. They're already facing some suffering, but the suffering had already broke out kind of in a big way against Christians in Rome. And, and Paul is writing to these believers in Asia Minor. He's warning them what's about to come. He, he's warning them that they're about to face some suffering and how do they need to deal with it as believers whenever it does come. So today we're going to cover more than just suffering, but since that's the main theme, we're going to talk about that. But but I want us to look at what truths we can learn from this passage of Scripture that we're looking at here in First Peter that can help equip us to better set Jesus apart in our hearts, even during a time of suffering. Even during a time of pain, it doesn't have to be physical suffering, it can be mental anguish that you're going through. Persecution that you're facing, emotional junk that's going on. So how, when, when we're facing that in our lives, how can we better set Jesus apart as Lord? Not just then, but all the time. To begin with this morning, if you're following along in, in the updates there and, and filling in the blanks, I want us to look at this, this thought here. Setting Jesus apart as Lord in my heart strengthens me in suffering. Setting Jesus apart as Lord in my heart, it can, can strengthen me when I am facing suffering. We might not like to talk about it, but whether we like it or not, we're going to face some suffering in life, aren't we? You know, the older I get, the more I'm aware of physical ailments and things that, uh, that take place that I didn't used to feel, you know, at, at all whatsoever. Uh, I, I mean, I, I guess maybe for, Almost 62, I'll be 62 this month. I guess we're almost 62. Maybe I'm in a little bit decent shape, but I can't do some of the things I used to do. I was at 
Paisley, our granddaughter's uh, basketball game yesterday over at Cosmo School. And of course, she's this tall. So, uh, you know, they pull the goals down and everything else. And I remember walking by the goal after the game was over with. And I look up at it and I thought, I, I used to maybe be able to dunk that, but I can't even dunk that one now. But, but we're going to face some suffering, not just physical pain because of sickness and illness, but we're going to face some difficulties, some, some, some hurts in our lives. So when, when all that's taking place, how in the world can, can we maybe make it through it better? How can we gain strength from setting Jesus apart in our hearts? I want you to notice two ways I think this scripture alludes to. First of all, setting Jesus apart as Lord of my heart helps prevent self-inflicted suffering. If I will have Jesus on the throne of my heart, if I will have Jesus seated upon the throne of my heart, the very virtue of doing that is going to help protect me against some self-inflicted suffering. You, you recognize you can cause your own pain sometimes, don't you? And, and look what he says here in 1 Peter chapter 3 and, and verse 13. Now, who is there to harm you if you're zealous for what is good. Now, now I understand you're, you're already thinking about, but Christians suffer because they're doing what's good. I, I understand that. He's going to talk about that in a moment. But right here, Peter's pretty much just putting forth a general principle. And a general principle would more or less be this. If you're really, really doing what's good, then that minimizes at least the chance that you're going to suffer because of your behavior. If you're going out and living really, really bad, you're going to maximize your chances of suffering because you're going to have run-ins with the law and, and, and other people and, and fights and problems and issues and everything else under the sun. So, but he, he's saying there, who, who is there really to, to, to harm you if, if you are, if you're zealous for what is good? In first Peter chapter four, verse 13, he puts it like this. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer. And some of you are thinking, well, man, I'm okay on those stuff. But then he says as a meddler, <laughs> you know, kind of covers a pretty broad spectrum of things there. In verse 17, more or less he's just saying this. If we, if we do suffer, Peter's let, telling us, let it be for doing good and not for doing evil. Verse 17 of the same passage we're in, he, he says this, for it's better to suffer for, for doing good if that should be God's will than for doing evil. So the principle he's establishing is, is this. You can minimize the suffering you face in life if you're really doing what God wants you to do. But if you do suffer, it'd be a whole lot better off from God's viewpoint and really from our viewpoint if we suffer because we're following Jesus then we suffer because we're living worldly and doing things out in the world we, we should not do. We, we can cause self-inflicted suffering by doing what is wrong. But the flip side of that is this. We can also cause self-inflicted suffering by doing what is basically righteous in the wrong way. Now, can I follow that away in your mind? Because I'm going to unpack that a little bit more in a moment. You can do the right thing in the wrong way and still cause a problem. Amen? Have you ever faced that before? And Peter will deal with that more in, in this passage of Scripture as we, as we get into it. We'll unpack that just a little bit more. 
But the point I want you to get here is simply this. We can help guard ourselves against self-inflicted suffering if we truly have Jesus set apart as Lord on my heart. Because if he's really set apart as Lord on my heart, that means I'm going to do what he wants me to do. I'm going to be doing the right things. And while it might cause me to face suffering, I'll face less suffering than I would if I'm out doing the wrong things. Does that make sense as a believer? So he's, so he's kind of giving us a, a, a warning here that we need to, we need to pay attention to. Some of the words that he uses there for harm means to, uh, uh, injure, to exasperate. The root word, uh, means worthless. More or less, who will really view you as worthless or depraved or injurious if you're really, really serving Jesus and you have him on the throne of your heart? He, he tells us we ought to be, we ought to be zealous instead have this zeal, this warmth in our hearts for what is good, for what is really benevolent, what's helpful. And if we live lives like that as Christians, if we're really zealous for what is beneficial for ourselves and other people in the world, we'll minimize the problems we face. But now that being said, there's also a second way we can suffer and a second way setting Jesus a part as Lord in our hearts can help us when we're facing suffering. The second one is this. Setting Jesus apart as Lord in my heart helps prepare me for persecution. Number one, it might minimize the fact that I face persecution, the fact that I, that I'm facing suffering in my life for doing the wrong thing. But still, undeniably, as you look at the history of Christianity and you look at what Peter's writing about here in the New Testament, Christians will face persecution. We will face difficulty. In verse 14 through 15a, he says this. But even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. And then the verse is our main theme. The send-off verse that I read a moment ago when I started the message. But in your hearts, regard Christ as holy. The NIV says, set Christ apart as, as Lord. He, he said if we suffer, if we're experiencing a painful sensation or the impression of pain in our lives, if that's taking place for righteousness sake, if the reason that we're suffering is because of, of Christian character, because of the equity of our character, because of, of us trying to be like Jesus, uh, if the reason we're suffering is because we uh, are justified, and that word means innocent or just or doing what's right, if we're suffering because of that, still, Peter says, even though we suffer, because we're doing what we should do as believers. We're living the way we should is basically what he's saying. He said we need to consider ourselves blessed. Supremely blessed is what the tense of it means in the Greek. I need to think of myself as fortunate. I need to think of myself as well off. Now, this will be clear a little bit later in the message, but here's one reason for that. Hey, my Savior suffered for me. Amen? So I'll view it in these terms. If I have to suffer for him... I'm blessed to be able to do so if I have to suffer for him. Now, Peter unpacks that a little bit more in, in just a moment. So practicing correct actions and attitudes prompted by the Lordship of Jesus upon our heart doesn't mean you'll never suffer. He's saying here that you can suffer because Jesus is Lord upon your heart. 
But he's encouraging this. He's encouraging persecuted believers not to fear their persecutors. The, the word, the, the phrase for fear there, when he says no fear, is a qualified negative in the Greek. Sometimes you'll, you'll see the word not or no or no fear in the Bible, and sometimes it will mean absolutely not. So that's not what the phrase means here. It means a qualified negative. God knows because of the world we live in and because we're human beings, when we face certain situations, we're going to be afraid. Amen? Sometimes your fear might save your life if you run the other way fast enough. So, so we will have some fear. But here I think is the main thought that the Holy Spirit had in mind. When he says, do not fear, do not in a qualified way be frightened, alarmed. But the word fear can also mean this. Do not be in awe or to revere them. In other words, I need to be more concerned about honoring God. I need to be concerned more about doing what God tells me to do. I worship God. I worship Jesus. I don't stand in awe with the people that might persecute me. So instead of me standing in awe of them, I need to stand in awe of Jesus. Does that make sense? And, and we're willing to face suffering anyway instead of standing in awe of someone that might persecute us. He, he said, nor be troubled. Don't be stirred up or agitated like flood and water hitting your life. He's acknowledging that we might suffer, but he's saying if we do suffer, let's do so because Jesus is Lord upon our hearts. He's encouraging persecuted believers not to fear their persecutors or be troubled. Instead, we need to set Jesus upon the throne of our heart no matter what we're facing. Now, we're not going through uh, a study of First and Second Peter, but to give you a little bit of background, he writes in First Peter to these scattered believers. He, he refers to them as pilgrims that are really just passing through, is, is the way the, uh, the King James puts it. He, he's writing to scattered believers in Asia Minor, and here's the reason they're scattered. They left certain areas to go to Asia Minor because of persecution. Now, Peter's warning them that the persecution will be on the way there. Peter is writing this from Rome. And he's writing it right in the time period when Nero had just set Rome on fire. And then he blamed the Christians for doing it in order to have a case and occasion against the Christians to persecute them. That's the environment that was taking place in that world. Can you imagine if the leader of our country all of a sudden burned New York City down to the ground and said it's the believers, it's the Christians that did it, you need to go and get them. That kind of gives you a mindset of what was taking place in that day and time. So he's writing to these scattered believers, letting them know you're going to face persecution. In 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 12 through 14, Peter writes these words, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you. As something strange were happening to you, but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed, kind of what he was referring to a moment ago in chapter, th- in chapter 13 where we're at, but because the spirit uh, of, of the glory, uh, chapter three rather, the spirit and the glory of God rest upon you. Now, now here's the whole point that I'm making here. This little sub point that I'm making as we think about being strengthened in suffering by letting Jesus, being sure Jesus is on the throne of my heart. 
The first one is not to inflict our own suffering. But this second one here is really practical also. If I know, if I'm warned that I'm going to suffer as a Christian, I can be more prepared for it. You understand what he's saying? He said, don't be surprised by it. If I delude myself into believing because I'm following Jesus, everybody in the world is going to love me. When they don't love me, it's going to hurt a whole lot worse than if I prepare myself in advance for the fact that they're all not going to love me. Does that make sense to you? Does it make sense to you? A lot of times we set ourselves up for a fall. We imagine, hey, now that I'm a Christian, everything's going to be smooth and fine. Ask Paul about that. Ask Peter about that. Go to the Old Testament, ask Job about that. We delude ourselves and we'll be a whole lot more prepared and strengthened to deal with suffering if we know it will happen. And he said this, he said we're to rejoice in the passage I read a moment ago, but rejoice in as far as you share in Christ's sufferings. So if I know persecution will come, and if I train myself to rejoice when persecution comes, it will give me the mindset to where I can make it through the suffering all the more. Amen? Does that make sense? It's easier to say than do, right? We can sustain through suffering now, knowing this also, knowing how he, he said that how his glory is going to be revealed, we might suffer now, but we'll also share in his glory when his glory is revealed. So think about it in these terms. I can make it through suffering now. I can even rejoice in the fact that I'm suffering now for the sake of Jesus. If I also remind myself and keep in mind, keep in view that one day I'm going to experience all of his glory. See how that works? I don't need to keep my mind upon, man, this is not fun. I don't like people mistreating me and go on a pity party. I need to keep my mind on what it will be one day. Amen? Where I will be one day. Who I will be with forever one day. And if we'll keep our focus upon that, that will help us when we're faced suffering. When others insult us, we should consider ourselves supremely blessed, even fortunate, even well off. In chapter 4, verse first. Verse 16, Peter writes these words. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name, in that name of Christ that you have as being a Christian. First Peter chapter 4, verse 19. Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. If I'm suffering My mindset needs to be, yes, this isn't fun, but I'm entrusting my soul to a faithful creator who I know I will be with for all eternity one day. So as we think about how we need to set Jesus apart as Lord on our hearts, it can help us in times of suffering. But the second main truth today is is this, setting Jesus apart as Lord in my heart also prepares me for sharing. It prepares me for sharing. We're going to look at verse 15 again, because we need to bear that in mind. That's the main context of this passage we're looking at. 
Remember what I told you it meant when I first read that in the introduction to the message. In your hearts, in a fixed position, in your emotions, your feelings, the very middle of your being, the very fiber of who you are, in a fixed position, set apart, make holy, consecrated, sanctified, sacred Jesus as the supreme authority, controller of your heart. He's on the throne of your heart. And if he's on the throne of my heart, that ought to prepare me for sharing. It ought to prepare me for telling other people the reason for the hope that I have. Setting Jesus apart as Lord of my heart also means this. Jesus is Lord or should be Lord over my voice. Read verse 15, the second part of it again. But in your hearts, regard Christ Lord as holy. Set apart Christ as Lord. Always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Look at some of the words that he used there in, in that. When he says always be prepared, it's kind of an interesting phrase. Because it tells me what I need to do, but what the word means. When we understand outright, he's saying, be prepared to to tell people the hope you have in Jesus. But the word means ever prepared, ever adjusted. If I'm going to be prepared to tell other people about Jesus, I might need to adjust some things about my life. I might need to adjust the fear level that I may have of telling somebody else about Jesus. I I may need to, to more prepare myself in order that I'm ready to make this defense and the phrase that he used there and that to make a defense means you're going toward, you're, you're going near, standing there. It's the word we get our English word apologetics from. I'm moving toward the willingness to give a plea, to give an answer, to give a defense of self. It's even in legal terms what the word means. The root word means to give an account of oneself in a legal plea. So imagine a courtroom for a moment. I'll come back to this courtroom illustration in a moment. But if you're in a courtroom and you're being tried, you have to give a defense, right? You have to give a plea for yourself. That's the thought that Peter's given us here. As believers, as Christians, we need to always be prepared to give a defense, to give a plea for why we have hope in Jesus. No matter if we're going through suffering, no matter whatever it is we face. And I will be more prepared. Here's kind of the underlying thought. Remind yourself of this. I will be more prepared to tell others about Jesus if he's sitting on the throne of my heart. Amen? If he is like enshrined there as holy upon my heart, I will be more prepared and more willing to tell anyone who might ask me. And you might not like this, but when it says to anyone who asks, that really does mean all, any, every, the whole, anyone who asks you. Sometimes we're willing to tell people about Jesus that we like, aren't we? That's not what it means. It says be prepared to tell anyone. I'm going to mention this later for prayer, but... Kairos is taking place this week and Joe and some of the guys are going in there and I guarantee you some of those people would not be their first choice to say, Hey, I want to go hang out with you for four days, but they're part of the anyone. Amen. They need to hear about Jesus also. 
The person that causes you trouble at work, they need to hear about Jesus. The, the people that you don't like because of the way they mistreated you, even the one that persecutes you, you need to be willing to share with them, to tell them, anyone who asks you, the reason why, the motive that you have. It, the, the word logos there is even the same word that talks about the divine expression of God referring to Jesus Christ himself. Anyone who asks for the reason that I have this hope in Christ. I have this hope that's through me, all over me, all around me. I have this confident expectation of the hope that I have in Jesus and it's in a fixed position in my heart. And because it is there in a fixed position, this hope that I have, I need to be willing to share with others why I have this hope. In other words, let me, I know that's a lot of word studies and stuff. And let me pull that down, make it practical just for a minute. When Jesus is set apart in your heart and you're going through suffering and people know you're going through suffering, and people are watching your life, and you still respond as a Christian in unexpected, hopeful ways when you're going through suffering. Here's what's going to happen every now and then. There's going to be some people around you that will see, even non-believers that will see, that even though you're going through trouble and suffering, you're responding in an unexpected, hopeful way, and they're going to ask you, how in the world can you still have that attitude? How can, how can you still act like you're happy? How can you, how can you still act like you have fulfillment in your life? How, how can you still act like that, that you really love Jesus when all this stuff is going on in your life? They might look at what you're going through and think, you know, it kind of looks like maybe Jesus has forsaken you, that, that, that God's forgotten all about you and you're over here facing this suffering and pain and, and yet you still have a smile on your face. You still are the same person you are when you're having good days. That's the point that Peter's making. Even in suffering, if we will be the same person as a Christian that we would be on the good days, then the lost world is going to take note of that. And every now and then they will ask us, how in the world can you, in the midst of the situation you're in now, in the suffering that you're facing now, how can you still have that hope about your life? And when they ask, the Jesus that's set apart as Lord in my heart needs to become Lord of my mouth and Lord of my voice. And I need to be willing to speak up and tell them why I still have that hope, <laughs> no matter how bad it is, why I still have hope in my life. It's great to have Jesus enshrined as the Lord of your heart. But I'm telling you, folks, Many people, many church members have that to a certain degree, but they never let the Jesus as Lord of their heart get out into their voice and into their hands and into their feet and go do something in a lost world. We need to allow the, the suffering that we may face in life. We need to set Jesus apart as Lord of my heart. And no matter what I'm suffering, no matter what I'm going through, I need to allow Jesus being Lord of my heart to prepare me for sharing my faith, to prepare me for defending my faith, using apologetics to defend my faith. Go back to the courtroom setting for a moment. If you're in court 
and you're the one that's on trial. You're having to try and make a legal plea and a defense. Well, we may not like this, but folks, here's the truth. The lost world around us has Christianity on trial. The people that know you're a Christian, that you work with, or in your family, or at school, or whatever the scenario might be, they have you on trial. They are watching your life. And that's why we need to be careful that we respond in the right way, that we respond with hope. That we respond as, as we should in, in suffering, in difficult times. We need to respond in the right way. When someone asks us, maybe even the person that was persecuting you, when they ask you, how in the world can you still be happy and hold on to your faith and your hope in, in the midst of that, we need to be willing to respond in the right way, which is going to lead to this. And I want you to remember this. We are witnesses. We're not prosecuting attorneys. You understand what that means? You and I as believers are to be witnesses. We're to be willing to share the reason we have the hope inside of us. We're not to be prosecuting attorneys and beat people to the ground with what we view as the law. We're not to take this as a weapon and, and use it to injure people. We're not to take our testimony and, and use it to injure people. Which brings me to this, this second thought about setting Jesus upon my heart, preparing me for sharing. The first one is Jesus being Lord of my heart means he ought to be Lord over my voice. But secondly, I want you to notice this. Setting Jesus apart as Lord of my heart also means Jesus is Lord over my attitudes. And he's Lord over my methods that I use in sharing. He said, always be prepared to give a reason for the hope that's in you. But then notice what he says that we mess up a whole lot of the time. Yet do it with hatred and anger. Do it calling down the wrath and the judgment of God upon the ungodly people that we meet in the world. What does it say? Do it with gentleness and respect. Having a good conscience. Not having to worry about the way you've treated the people and responded to them. So that when you are slandered, and I'll let you in on some more news. <laughs> As a Christian, you're going to be slandered by the world around you. When you're slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. We never will fully attain this because we're still humans in an imperfect world. One day we'll be able to attain it. But our goal as believers in the world that we live in, because we have lost people watching us all the time, we need to be trying to live our lives above criticism. We need to try and live our lives above criticism. You won't be able to fully do it no matter how good you try. You will never be able to fully accomplish keeping people from attacking you or slandering you or talking bad about you because of your, of your Christian faith. 
But what we can do is this. We can avoid giving them more ammunition to shoot at us with. Does that make sense? Our problem is many times we give them the ammo they need to shoot at Christianity. We come across as hateful bigots. We, we come across to, to a lost world as, as people that lack severely the compassion and the love of Jesus that ought to be evident in our lives. We don't come across with gentleness and respect many times to a lost world around us. And by our wrong attitudes and our wrong motives and our wrong actions, even when we're trying to do the right thing by sharing our faith with somebody else, if we do it in the wrong way, we're giving a lost world around us ammunition to shoot at us with. But he said... If we do it with gentleness and respect, we can have a good conscience so that when we're slandered, those who do revile you anyway, even though you're doing it right in the right way, with the right attitude, the right motives, those who do slander you, those who do revile you, those who hate you because of your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame because they are accusing you of something that's false and they know it. And they'll wind up eventually being put to shame because of it. Think of it in these terms. If somebody decides they're going to do you injury and they draw a gun and they point it at you and they pull the trigger and there's no ammo in it, they're kind of embarrassed, aren't they? They'd be real embarrassed to some of us because mine's loaded. I'm just telling you, we, we need to avoid giving people the ammo that they need to attack us. And the attitudes and the motives that we have are extremely important. Because even if it's a person that's persecuting us, if we respond with wrong attitudes and wrong motives, here's what happens. We close the door on their heart of hearing anything that we want to tell them about Jesus. Did you hear that? If we respond in the wrong way, even if we're saying the right thing, if we respond in the wrong way, we can say right things in the wrong ways and destroy the message that God wants to get into their heart. If we say the right thing in the wrong way. So here's what we have to remember when we're defending our faith. When we're sharing our faith, this, this is what Peter's calling us to. To be willing, whenever anyone asks us to share our faith, when they see the hope that we have, even when we're going through suffering, we need to remember this. I need to remember defending or sharing my faith in Christ with others is not about winning an argument. It's about saving their eternal soul. It's about winning them to faith in Jesus. You may have been guilty of it before. I'm sure I have been guilty of it before in getting with a debate with somebody on Facebook or whatever the case is. If I'm not careful, I can back somebody in the corner because of all the doctrine I know and everything else. And, and they think I'm just, you know, I, I'm just, I'm just being harsh with them and kind with them. And, it, and if it doesn't come across in a loving way, I've destroyed what God wants me to do. 
We, we need to be on guard and remind ourselves we're trying to win the person to Jesus. We're not trying to win an argument. That's why it says we're to do it with gentleness and respect. With, the word means accompaniment. In other words, our sharing needs to be accompanied with a mildness, a humility, a meekness, a respect, even a phobos or a fear, not the fear of sharing with them. That's not what he's telling us. I don't need to be afraid to share with somebody. I need to be afraid that I shared in the wrong way and I close down their heart and I close down their ears where they never ever want to hear what I want to say to them again. That's what I ought to be afraid of and be on guard about doing that. So I can have a good conscience of when they slander us, when they speak evil against us, when they talk against us, when they backpipe the way the King James puts it against us, when they revile us, when they're talking against us, insulting us, falsely accusing us. Our good behavior, our good beneficial behavior in a fixed position in Jesus Christ will shame them down eventually. You want to see the perfect example for that? Can you guess who the perfect example would be? What have I told you the correct answer is 99.9% of the time at day three church when I ask you a question? Oh, come on, guys. What's the answer? Jesus. Look here at this passage of scripture. For to this you've been called. We've been called as believers because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example. Now, he didn't just suffer as an example. He suffered vicariously for our sins. But here he's talking about the example part. So that you may follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. That's what Jesus did. On the way to the cross, they were spitting upon him, beating him, reviling him, making fun of him. The whole time he was on the cross, he was still all-powerful God. He could have stopped their mouths just by the will of his thoughts. But he didn't do that because he was doing what he needed to do in that moment to purchase our salvation. That gives us the example that we need to follow. It's not about winning an argument. It's not about reviling someone else. He says later on in first Peter, beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of this flesh, which war against your soul. We'll read that and we'll just think of, you know, things we view of as being really sinful. Yes, that's what it's talking about. But we also need to abstain from other things that the passions of the flesh are my war against my soul. Hey, I want to show you how much I know as a Christian. I'm going to beat you down with my Christianity. I'm going to prove to you what I know about Jesus. And in the process of winning the argument, I've lost the battle. He said, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that they may, so when they speak evil against you as evildoers, they will see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. There's some debate about what's meant by the day of visitation. I think either one is true. There's two main thoughts along that. That because of your good behavior, even though they've reviled and they've mistreated you, your good behavior, they eventually come to Christ when God visits them with salvation and then they glorify God. I think that's being taught there. 
If I'll respond the right way when I'm being mistreated wrongly, if I'll respond the right way, just maybe the person mistreating me one day will come to faith in Jesus and then they'll glorify God on the day of their salvation, on the day that God visits them. But I also think this part of it is true also. Even if they never ever trust Jesus, there's coming a day that every knee's going to bend and every, every tongue's going to confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Even if it's their visitation and judgment, they're going to have to glorify God, whether they want to or not, for your good behavior in that moment and in that day and time. We need to set Jesus apart as Lord in our hearts because it will help strengthen me when I'm going through suffering. But it will also help prepare me for sharing my faith if Jesus is there upon my heart as he should be as, as Lord. Last thing I want you to see is this. Setting Jesus apart as Lord in my heart gives me victory. Gives me victory. And we're going to cover these verses fairly quickly because I have to. But I want us to close by understanding we can experience victory in our lives, even when we're suffering, if we'll set Jesus apart as Lord of our hearts. Here's why. Setting Jesus apart as Lord in my heart involves this. It involves me, it involves you remembering Jesus suffered. If I'm setting him apart as Lord of my heart, I will remember also that Jesus suffered for me. First Peter three eighteen, for Christ also suffered how many times for sins once and for all. Jesus suffered once for sins, the righteous, he himself for the unrighteous us that he might bring us to God. Being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. See, if I will remember that when I'm suffering, that Jesus also suffered. He didn't just suffer. He suffered for my sin. He suffered for your sin once and for all forever. He paid for our sins so he can take us into the very presence of of, of eternal holy God forever one day. So if I will bear in mind that Jesus suffered when I'm going through a little bit of my suffering, that's a little bit of suffering in light of what Jesus faced. Instead of me going on a pity party, I ought to have a celebration. Amen. I ought to, I ought to celebrate the victory that he has won for me, the eternal victory that he won for me upon the cross. See, there's eternal victory in what we read there, and there's a practical victory in remembering Jesus suffered. Eternally, he purchased my salvation. Practically, as I remember Jesus suffered, undeserving, sinless, guiltless as Jesus was, yet he suffered on the cross for sin, who am I to go on that pity party I mentioned a moment ago? Instead, I'll just celebrate the victory that he won for me. Second thing about setting Jesus as Lord upon my heart gives me victory. Not not only remembering Jesus suffered, but setting Jesus upon my heart as Lord in my heart also involves celebrating Jesus' total victory. Now, there's a ton of stuff said in these verses, and I'm not going to unpack it all because that's not the intent of this message. 
But let me read verse 19 through 22 for you. In which he went, talking about Jesus, and proclaimed to the spirits in prison. Because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah. While the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought to safety through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this. In other words, he's using this as kind of an illustration of baptism. Now, save you. And he's not talking about saving your soul. It's, it's, it's an outward sign. I'll talk more about that in a minute. Which, which now saves you, not as the removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience. <laughs> you don't have a good conscience before God till after you're saved. Amen? Baptism is just a sign of that taking place. Through the resurrection, here's how that happens. You get the good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven on the other side of the resurrection. He's gone into heaven. He's at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. Now, like I said, there's a lot of things said there. There's a lot of debate over what in the world does it mean that Jesus went and he preached to the spirits that are in prison. Some people say it was the, uh, the, the sons of God, the angels that, that fell and, and, and had relations with the, with the daughters of, of men and, and that they were assigned there in Hades and Jesus goes to Hades and he proclaims final judgment over them. We know the Bible teaches in other places that between the crucifixion and the burial and his resurrection, Jesus went to Hades and he led captivity free. Amen. Whatever the the full intent is here that he's alluding to, some people believe that it means that the spirit of Jesus preached through Noah's preaching in the day before the flood and the judgment hit. But whatever it means is this, it clearly tells us that he went and he proclaimed victory. Amen. That's the main thought I want you to get. He went and he proclaimed victory. Jesus showed up in a place called Hades in the Bible, on the other side being nailed to the cross, taking his life back up. He went and he proclaimed, I have defeated sin. I've defeated Satan. I've defeated death. And he proclaimed total victory when he went there. That's the main thought I want you to get. Some people say, oh, but it teaches salvation by, by baptism. Well, that's a strange thing if you're talking about Noah and his family because the water wanted to kill him. It didn't want to save him. What saved them was the ark. Hey, Jesus is our ark. Amen. He's our place of safety. But the main thought, like I said a moment ago, the main thought, the main thought you need to wrap your mind around is this. Jesus went and he celebrated total Victory. Think about what's said there. It said that he's gone into heaven. He's at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. What an image of total victory. The world nailed him to a cross, threw him in a tomb, sealed it, put an armed guard there thinking they were done with him. But he takes his life back up. He walks around and proves it for days. Then he ascends and he sits down at the right hand of God and he's proclaimed total victory and everything is his footstool. Everything is made subject to him. And if we will focus upon that, our suffering won't matter as much to us, will it? If we'll set Jesus upon the throne, 
of our heart is Lord. That person that's on the throne of my heart and your heart, if you're a Christian, has won the total victory. And that needs to be our mindset. I fully realize, as I mentioned, I was trying to help the men out. Guys, if you got some buddies and everything, call and remind them, hey, it's Valentine's Day coming up. Don't, don't screw up. I've got to make up. I'm going to be gone for two days beforehand. I've got to go with the Baptist State Convention Church planning team to Monroe and help do an Operation Reach event through, uh, throughout their whole county all day Tuesday. Uh, so I've got to make up and get back on, on Valentine's Day. But you see, I think I really have been talking about Valentine's today. Because for a Christian, the most important love relationship that you and I ought to have is Jesus. Amen? The most important person that ought to be upon the throne of our heart is Jesus. As much as I love Becky, she can't have the place that Jesus has. As much as you love whoever... Your spouse, your children, your friends, whoever it might be, they shouldn't have the place that Jesus has. And we need to let him be upon the throne of our hearts, to be the controller of our hearts and our lives. As the Lord Jesus Christ set him apart as Lord, even during times of suffering. Here's simply what we've talked about today. Setting Jesus apart as Lord of my heart strengthens me in suffering. Setting Jesus apart as Lord of my heart prepares me for sharing, especially during times of suffering. Dwight L. Moody, most of you probably know who he is, but Dwight L. Moody one time had this man come up and was criticizing uh, Dwight Moody's methods of evangelism. And Moody looked at him and he said, Well, I'm I'm always... Open and ready for improvement. So what's your method? The man stumbled around for a minute and then admitted he doesn't have any. He said, I don't have any. And Moody said, I think I'll keep with my own then if you don't have any. I alluded to this last week. Some of our men went to an evangelism conference a few weeks back called the Don Sunshine Personal Evangelism. During that time, he introduced us to something called the Pocket Testament League. Where we can order the Gospel of John and in the front of it, it has the plan of salvation. And inside it has the whole Gospel of John. The contents pretty much the same in all of them, but on the outside, they're specific targeted audiences. That's got a motorcycle on it. I ride a motorcycle. You think I may bump into somebody that I know of that rides a motorcycle that I've got an easy way to give this to because it's got a motorcycle on the front of it? There's some up here that talk about how to be a success. If you're in business, you can hand that to somebody. There's all kinds of pictures up here. These new high-tech coloring books that some of you ladies love and everything. Even one looks like that. I mean, that just opens up the door for you to give it to other women. We have ordered these for you to take. And if you need it for yourself, you keep it for yourself. If you don't know Christ as your Savior, I'm going to ask you to take one of these and go home and read it. If you got any questions, you please let me know and we'll sit down and talk.
But for the rest of us, during this invitation time, I want to challenge everyone in this place. And it's not just my expectation. Don't you come up here because you think the preacher's watching and he wants me to. There's someone more important than me that's watching. And he wants you to. And during the invitation song, I want to invite you to come up and don't clear me out because I need him for the second service also. There's 400 and I think 70 some of them up here that I ordered. Easter Sunday, we're going to have 500 up here that has special Easter covers on it for you to take and give to people that week. But I'm challenging you because here's a deficit I think most churches have. To set Jesus on the throne of your heart and be willing to tell others. And if you think, well, you don't really know how, as I've said before, if you'll come and talk to us, we'll train you how. But anybody can take this little booklet and hand it to a friend or a co-worker or a family member or someone checking you out at the grocery store and say, well, will you read this? Will you do me a favor and read this? And ask them to call you later. You know, give them your number, give the church number, give them my cell phone number, whatever, to where they can call. If Jesus is Lord upon our heart, he ought to be Lord of our voice also. Amen. We ought to be able to share with others. And we talked today about the victory. Setting Jesus as far as Lord of my heart gives us victory. You may be thinking to yourself as a Christian, I don't feel very victorious. It may be because you're not doing this. Because you're not sharing your faith with others in the right way, with the right attitude, with gentleness and respect. Because if you prosecute them like a prosecuting attorney, they won't listen. If you love them like a friend, eventually they'll listen. If you don't know Christ as your Savior this morning, if there's never been a time in your life that you admitted to God that you're a sinner, that you repented of that sin and you said, God, I'm turning from my sin. I'm turning to you and I'm going to trust in the finished work of Jesus on the cross. If that's never happened, this time's for you today during the service. For the rest of us that know him, this is your time. This is your invitation. This is your response this morning. To come and select some of these that you feel like you, you gravitate toward. There's some with sports cars on them. There's some with... with um, uh, all, all types of things, uh, the outdoors and everything else. Take it and pray about who you need to give it to. Father, we thank you that we've had the chance to worship today. We pray that you take this time and you seal in our hearts our need to share our faith better with others. Lord, help us to set you as king upon the throne of our heart. By doing so, It'll help strengthen us in suffering. By doing so, it will will help prepare us for sharing with others. By doing so, we can we can have victory in our lives, no matter what we're facing. If you're the King on our hearts, for it's in Jesus' name we pray. Thanks for listening to this sermon audio production from Day Three Church. We pray that it has ministered to you. For more information about our location, service times, or other sermon podcasts, please visit us online at day3church.org.
Day 3 Church. Experience a new day in your life.